before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. There is no reliable data on the number of people who regret their decision to undergo transgender surgery. James Caspian, a trained psychotherapist who worked for a decade with people who wanted to change their gender, decided to find out more, but was blocked by Baltimore University for trying to research non-politically correct topics. He's now trying to take his university to court. Laura Dodsworth is a writer and photographer who documented detransitioners for the Sunday Times through photographs of their bodies, and she has written a longer piece on interviews with the detransitioners online. Both joined David Scullion on the podcast this week. Hello, I'm delighted to be joined today by James Caspian and Laura Dodsworth. Uh, Laura is a photographer, writer and filmmaker who's written about and photographed people who have detransitioned. So they've had surgery to change their gender and then they've had surgery to uh, change it back again. James Caspian's a trained psychotherapist. He's worked in a private gender clinic uh, providing counselling therapy for people who wanted to change their gender. Uh, um, and he's currently trying to take Bathsby University for court to, uh, for refusing to let him uh, do a master's research project uh, in detransitioning. It's, I'm really delighted to have you both on uh, to talk about this topic. Um, just before I start, I think it's fair to say for both of you that you're both not anti-trans in general. Is that, is that right for both of you? Laura, maybe you could start. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not anti-trans. I'm not anti any type of human being. Not at all. Um, I I think it's a really unfortunate accusation that gets levelled against people that want to ask more nuanced questions or don't want to repeat dogma. Uh, But no, I'm absolutely not anti-trans and I'm going to do the classic thing of saying I've got trans friends. Uh, James, uh, you've worked uh, with trans people for a long time. You're not anti-trans either, are you? Well, hardly. Um, First of all, I've known people who were transitioning since I was... 16, 17 years old, uh, back in the 70s. And uh, I've also been the trustee of a charity called the Beaumont Trust for 17 years. Uh, that charity seeks to support people who are in you know, some way trans, transgender, we call it today, and also to educate about them. Um, as well as that, I spent 10 years helping people who thought they wanted to transition or who were transitioning, helping them to. Um, understand themselves so I'm, I'm not pro or anti anything um i accept people as i, as I find them um so it, it is something i've been immersed in for many years and i did research in 2004 in china into chinese transsexuals also in hong kong and taiwan uh so it, it's kind of, it kind of became my field professionally for many years um and, and so, you know, the idea that I'm in some way anti-trans is actually ridiculous. Mm. And Laura, you um, you have uh, done various photographic projects, and one of which was on on detransitioners. Um, uh, firstly, can you explain a bit better than I did what are detransitioners, and, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you got interested in that topic? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's. It's a difficult thing to explain to somebody for the first time if they've never come across it. So I'm probably going to get this wrong. So this is my ham-fisted attempt. If you are transgender, it will mean that your idea about your gender doesn't match your physical body. And I photographed and interviewed women, I focused on women for this project, who had at one point thought they were trans. And then they had gone through various types of transition. So that varied um, from a woman who changed her pronouns and her name and her passport, her legal identity, right through to women who had had double mastectomies, then women who had had double mastectomies and also had their uterus and ovaries removed and took hormones, through to a woman who had a phalloplasty. So she, she had um, her breasts, uterus and ovaries removed and had... Um, a penis created and all of these women and I'll call them women because they detransitioned at some point realized they weren't actually trans that they were women after all and wanted to detransition so they wanted to go back to living as women 
But it gets really complicated because what does what does living as a woman mean? What what is gender? Basically, they just became reconciled to their physical bodies. Aside from one who's called Lee in my project, um, because although Lee wanted to detransition, Lee felt that actually their body couldn't cope with the reversal surgery. So Lee had had. Um, her breasts and uterus and ovaries removed and we'd taken testosterone for many years, had a phalloplasty created to then remove the phalloplasty and try to recreate an approximation of female genitalia and reverse all the changes that we've done to her body with hormones felt impossible. So she's actually, he has stayed um, resembling a man and living as a man. So detransition is it's kind of a new concept in society. It's really not been around for too long and people describe it in different ways, but it's reversing whatever the process of transition looked like for the individual, which can be just changing your name back to trying to um, undo as far as possible the effects of surgery and hormones. But of course, it's bearing in mind that can't be undone. Once you have had a double mastectomy or had your uterus removed or your ovaries removed, that cannot be undone. Um, how did I get interested in it? Well, for about five years, I worked on a series of photographic and interview projects um, where I focused on parts of the body. So bare reality, I photographed and interviewed 100 women about their breasts. For manhood, um, it was penises. And for womanhood, it was vulvas. And there was a Channel 4 documentary based on that called 100 Vaginas. So over five years, my understanding of trans changed completely because when I started bare reality in 2013, being trans was barely on my radar. I didn't really know much about it, but I included two trans women. One woman had had breast implants and surgery and actually had had full um, genital reassignment surgery. And the other was taking hormones and growing breasts that way, but living, living quite androgynously, switching between presenting as a woman and a man. And I found it really fascinating and really interesting, but the idea, like, Everything about being trans, um, you know, the politicisation of it, if that's a fair way of putting it, you know, it is a movement really grew over the five years. And so my understanding changed. But I spent five years interviewing over 300 people about their sexed bodies. And more and more, I just felt that how we are on the inside is a question of personality. I don't even really know what the idea of a gender is. I don't have a gender. I, I don't know if I feel like a woman. I just, I just am a woman. And I know that's not the same for everybody. Some, have, some people have ideas that their gender doesn't match their body. But that, those projects were so rooted in the sexed body that I became really interested and fascinated actually by the idea of people who don't feel like they match their body. It's a very, it's a very uncomfortable feeling when you think about it. And then when I first came across the idea of detransition, and I don't remember where I first saw an article or came across someone, that was so uncomfortable. I felt like I couldn't even, I couldn't let my mind inhabit it. The idea that you would change your body and then regret it, but you can't ever go back physically to who you were, was very discombobulating. And that's, that's why I, I undertook the detransition project. I, I researched, in, I researched um, clinicians and people who have detransitioned, and trans people and par parents of detransitioners, nurses and endocrinologists for over a year. And I found seven detransitioned women who would take part, let me photograph them and interview them about the process. I hope that wasn't too rambly. That's quite long. Sorry. No, no, that's that's, that's not a problem. Do you think? Um, do you think uh, photography was it was a good medium to explore that? Oh yeah, definitely. Of course I would, because I'm, I'm a photographer. But um, <laughs> I think so. There's a there's a couple of reasons. The first one is a process when you. When you work with somebody, when you just interview them, the conversation's on one level. I mean, we're doing so much conversation now just over Zoom and phone, and I really hunger for that chemistry in the room with somebody. 
because it's completely different. Most of our communication is non-verbal. We really need to see each other, but just react to those tiny nuances in the flesh. So if you just interview somebody, at least you get that. When you photograph somebody, there is a completely different layer of communication and reveal that is physical, but it's, it's also emotional. Because when somebody has agreed to talk about something very intimate, there's an opening up. But when they also let you photograph them intimately, there's a level of trust and a level of reveal that you don't access just through talking. Um, I did pitch this as a documentary to broadcasters and I think there was some nervousness about going there but I think it would have made a really exquisite film um, much like 100 Vaginas did because there is this this unlocking that you get through the reveal. Nothing salacious about it. I hope everybody would look at the photographs of detransitioners and agree there's nothing gratuitous or or titillating about the way they've been photographed but they let me see their bodies and what that does is just bring home the stark physical reality of um, of their physicality and the changes they made to their body but between us as interviewer and interviewee as two participants in a process it enabled more trust and more opening up you mentioned that you had some nervousness from broadcasters to discuss the topic. I think that's something that plays quite... Uh, I think James would would, uh, would recognise quite a lot. James, you, uh, if I've got this right, you seem to... You've been working with people um, who uh, transitioned and uh, you were helping people to... You were helping to decide whether people were, um, were suitable for transitioning. And, and you seem to be getting along fairly comfortably until... Uh, in 2014, you had a chat with a colleague who's running a clinic in Serbia uh, over a pint. C can you tell us a little bit about that conversation you had? Yes, right. Well, well, well as, you, as you correctly said, um, I've been working with people who uh, wanted to transition or were considering it. And then around the early years of the second decade of the 21st century, so looking about sort of 2011, 2012, 2013, we had already noticed that there was a change in the profile uh, of people who were coming to ask for help at the clinic and, and other clinics. Um, and at the same time, a bit later on, 2014, I was having a drink with Dr. Georgievich from Belgrade. He does a lot of gender reassignment surgery from male to female and female to male. He does both ways. People go to his clinic from all over the world. And he said he was very worried because he'd recently had several requests for uh, what, he, what he was calling reverse gender reassignment surgery. Um, but as Laura has correctly said, you can't actually reverse that surgery either way. All you can do is try and do a cosmetic surgery to create an appearance of the uh, removed genitalia. Uh, so he said, he said, no one's ever researched this. We know nothing about it. What's going on? It needs to be researched. So we haven't had a chat, and I decided that I was going to research it. Interestingly, since then, um, I saw Dr. Georgievich on a, doc a Dutch documentary about 18 months ago where he said he'd had about 70 requests for reverse surgery. So that's 10 times as many requests. Uh, as he had had in 2014. And so obviously we're seeing an exponential rise in that. Um, so I then enrolled at Barthesbar University to do an MA, uh, principally because that particular MA, which I could do remotely on my computer in my spare time because I was working full time, uh, it, it consisted of a piece of research of your own choice. So I went there with the specific intention of, of undertaking this research. Dr. Georgievich told me that he was going to be hosting the European Professional Association of Transgender Health Conference, which is held every two years in Europe. Uh, he was hosting that in Belgrade in, I think it was going to be 2017. And he said, well, if you do that research, then I would like to invite you to present it at the conference. So I would then be taking my findings to my colleagues in the field of transgender medicine and telling them what I'd found out. And I thought this was very important because we'd already witnessed an increase in patients um, who'd had medical treatment to transition, who'd had surgery, um, regretting that, detransitioning, and suing doctors. 
so there was an in- increase in that, and I thought yeah, this has really got to be done. It's so important, um, and it was such a good opportunity to be offered to to be able to take that to the professional field. That was never to happen because Bath Spa University Ethics Committee. Um, I was a couple of years into the MA, and they said uh, they refused me permission to continue with the research. And what was that reason then for, for refusing your permission? Well, just to explain that, um, firstly, they did grant me permission. They gave me permission to undertake research into the experiences of people who underwent reverse gender transition surgery. So that would be people, um, as Laura had uh, already mentioned, people who had, it would be natal males, men, who'd had their testicles and penis removed and had a neo-vagina created by inverting the penile skin um, and had regretted that and then asked Dr. Georgievich to give them phalloplasty. So that's a, a cosmetic penis created from another part of the body, such as um, on the forearm or from uh, the skin from under the arm, part of the back and so on. Uh, and, and then the difficult part, of course, is then creating a urinary system, a urethra through that so the person can urinate and so on. Clearly, this is not a reverse, as Laura said. This is simply a cosmetic replacement. So um, I've been granted permission to undertake that research. And then when I put out on the Internet uh, a request for people to contact me to become participants, you know, people who've done the, the reversal to detransition to contact me, I was contacted by several people who didn't, who either couldn't or didn't want to take part in the research. The ones who couldn't said that they didn't undergo reverse surgery. They just detransitioned and lived with the scars. And this was a, a group of young women who had had their breasts removed and then and taken testosterone in some cases and then stopped the hormones, gone back to living as female, but didn't have breast implants. So as they said, we don't qualify for your research because we just live with the scars and they clearly wanted to be in the research and I wanted to have them in the research. Um, as well as that, I was contacted by some uh, males who'd gone to female and back to male who said they were so traumatised by the experience that it was impossible to talk about, um, which only uh, accentuated the need for this research. Um, so I went back to the university and said, I want to slightly amend that proposal to include people who reverse transition, detransition, but don't reverse the surgery as well. So I would do both groups. And they said, you'll have to go back to ethics, the ethics committee. So I did. And at that point, they refused it. And the, uh, the reasons they wrote on the form, which came back, were uh, along the lines, this is virtually verbatim, actually, um, to undertake a piece of inverted commas, politically incorrect, close inverted commas, research. Um, could incur criticism of the research. Criticism of the research would be criticism of the university. And furthermore, it is better not to upset people. So this was their principal reason. Um, and I later obtained under the Freedom of Information Act um, some emails that had gone around in Bath Spa University around that time. And it was clear that there were people, people who I'd never even heard of in the university, who were rather panicky about my research and the same things to each other like, can't you get into research something else? And things like that. And that was before, I think that was before the Ethics Committee made their decision as well. So that was a- around there. Um, and they then added some, well, frankly, it was a bit of flannel about how they were concerned about the privacy of the um, participants and they were concerned about security and safety. These are all standard research concerns which you're asked to address, and I did address completely competently um they're now using that as a kind of excuse of, oh no, that's why we wouldn't let him do it but the real reason was written there in black and white they were concerned about their reputation about being criticized mm. uh, james when you worked back when you worked in the clinic what, what was actually said to the patients was anything said at all about about whether they might change their minds at a future date well um to to explain some of that you, you need to understand how trans, transgender medicine, if we can call it that, works. Um, back in the day, you know, back in previous decades, and this is a very new field, there's only been an NHS clinic since the 1960s for it um, called the uh, Gender Identity Clinic. Um, the, the psychiatrists were what 
were called gatekeepers. Gatekeepers were professionals, medics, psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, who had the power to say whether or not somebody could have hormone treatment and refer for surgery. In other words, whether somebody could have a medical transition. And they really did act as gatekeepers. They um, they were they were very tough. They asked some very tough questions. They they had a, a certain bar that the patients had to reach in order to get their medical treatment. For instance, um, males going to female, if they turned up in trousers and not in a dress, they wouldn't get treatment. So they had to conform to a certain kind of script and a certain presentation to get treatment. These doctors were called gatekeepers. Then found, um, because there was a burgeoning trans rights movement that went back um, to the 60s, and I, I know some of the people that founded that, they're very good friends of mine, actually, and I've worked with them. Um, so, so then there is the feeling that this is very unfair, and what we need to do is to um, explain to the professionals that this is not a mental condition. This is just somehow some intrinsic condition in a person um, that there's nothing, you, you know, no amount of psychoanalysis or therapy will get somebody out of that uh, because they, they will persist in this cross-sex identification. And so therefore, treatment should be easier to get. So we then moved over a longer period of time into what we call informed consent. Now, I worked according to informed consent. Um, I hasten to add, uh, when I would be counseling or giving therapy to people, um, I wouldn't have a view on what they should or shouldn't do. Um, therapy involves accepting people where they are and working with them from that point, and it's exploratory to help somebody understand themselves. However, there was a period where I did assessments for suitability for treatment, where essentially yeah, I was acting as a gatekeeper in those assessments. I wasn't counselling the people uh, who I was assessing at that point. Um, but that was according to informed consent. Uh, informed consent was something operated by the doctors that gave the treatments. So I wouldn't um, give somebody an informed consent form. The doctor who was prescribing for them or referring to surgery would. And the informed consent form would basically say, this is what you are getting yourself into. Here is a list of side effects of hormones. Um, do you understand what you're doing? Um, we want to make sure that you haven't got any uh, current unresolved mental health conditions. Um, any mental health conditions must be under control, in inverted commas, um, and you must understand what you're doing and you sign here to say that you do. Um, actually, none of that actually protects the doctor from being sued, uh, really. But that's informed consent. Um, so then, from informed consent, what's now emerged, and it's emerged in a big way in America where there's lots of private clinics, and it's also because, you know, where America goes, we tend to follow. Um, it's also become part of gender medicine here, kind of, um, kind of crept in. And affirmation is where somebody says, well, I'm this, I'm trans. Interestingly, talking about trans, you know, what is trans? What is that? Um, I don't know. All I know is that a doctor once told me he'd made a long list of all the different reasons why people came to a clinic to ask for treatment. Different reasons. This is a very complex area. People are complex. People want to have medical treatment for different reasons. There isn't just one intrinsic thing, which is trans. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of become like that, but it isn't so. So um, with affirmation, somebody would say, I'm, you know, a gender identity, you know, non-binary, or I'm uh, a man or a woman if their sex body is different, or, they, or, you know, I've been told there are more than 70 different gender identities out there. Um, and the clinician says, you are what you say you are. You are. Yes, you are. Um, and, and, and then effectively, if somebody wants to have treatment, they can have it. Well, it's not hugely different from informed consent, really. Um, but what it does is it takes away any kind of caution, really, because in informed consent, there is an element of caution because we know that there are people that regret transition and detransition, and we know that that has been on the rise exponentially. 
to hear you list out the reasons why your research was refused. And the idea that you shouldn't conduct research because it might upset people is what I find the most staggering. The fact that the university didn't want to attract any criticism is... It's not edifying. It's really not. But that you shouldn't conduct research because it might upset people is just... It's just astonishing. How much academic research wouldn't have happened in the past because it might upset people? Yes, absolutely. Well... We'd, we'd, never have moved, we'd never have moved on from the Dark Ages, would we? That's right. But interestingly, what I discovered after this became public knowledge was that other people have run into similar problems but the difference is that the universities would have couched their refusals in different terms that were that would be impossible to challenge because you cannot challenge an academic decision in a court uh, now making a decision on the basis of reputation is not an academic decision that's why i'm challenging it legally but a clever university uh, would have just made up an academic reason why you couldn't do the research. And then there's nothing you could have done. And senior academics contacted me from universities after this and said, oh, research does get stopped quite a lot for very spurious reasons, for political reasons, um, because they don't want to upset funders and things like that. It's just that you never hear about it and the person can't do anything about it. So it's, it's really just the tip of the iceberg, I think. So the, the only reason that you're in this position now is because they somebody messed up at Bath Spa by, by giving you the real reason that they were denying your research? It looks that way, doesn't it? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that... Uh, they, they, I think they, they just didn't think, really. Uh, James, one thing you uh, mentioned was the, the shift from uh, older males to younger females in, uh, in in seeking transition in the first place. And I think you said that you thought social media was was uh, played a huge part in this. Perhaps, Laura, you uh, uh, you could answer this one. Have you noticed that it's kind of internet communities has, has fueled the rise of um, transitioning? Yeah, there's a real resistance to this idea, but I, I don't... I mean, I just think it's undeniable. Um, so it comes under the umbrella term of rapid-onset gender dysphoria. And... It's it's quite a disruptive idea to some aspects of transgender ideology, which is that gender is innate, can't be messed with, it's nothing from the outside, it's inside you what gender you, you have. But I think what was probably going to, what, what, what James can talk about more and I came across in my research is that quite young girls are developing the idea that they're not women, they don't identify with being women. But there are some quite complex reasons for that but they're, they're reasons that are as old as time and they it's why I also chose to focus on women for my project because I'm I'm a woman I've been through some of these things and I interviewed and photographed 200 women for projects about breasts and vulvas so I've there's there's nothing to do with your your sexed life as a woman I haven't talked about with somebody when when girls hit puberty it can be a really difficult time when your body projects you into being a woman you know when you suddenly acquire breasts and periods if you don't feel ready for it or if you attract sexual attention it can be really difficult all the women i interviewed and many i came across who aren't in the the finished project they're actually lesbian and they were they either encountered homophobia, lesbophobia from other people, or they didn't come to terms with their sexuality themselves. There was a really, a really high proportion who had been um, sexually abused, or at least experienced sexual harassment, but some really dark sexual abuse stories that I couldn't even put into the stories because they were just too, they were too dark, to be honest, um, to be published in a, in a broadsheet. Once they'd resolved some of these issues, later on they, they came more to an acceptance with their body. But really it's like they were running from being women. And so many of them talked about the, the idea, the fact that they came across the idea that you can be trans online. They did, they're just completely upfront about it. Um, and sometimes it's because they Googled. They, they said, what does it mean when you feel like this? Um, or they came across forums and that's how the idea took hold and grew. And I think it just felt very appealing for those women I interviewed because it was like this big escape route out of everything that had been very difficult about coming to terms with being a woman at a really key, difficult age for girls. Is there also a... I mean, I think in one of your articles you mentioned there's a, a Reddit forum for, for detransitioners. Yeah. Is, you know, is that 
so I guess in some ways that the, the internet has brought people to this point, some people, and uh, it's also helping them to to uh, seek other people who've detransitioned. Yes. James, you might know this more than me, but wasn't that detrans Reddit subreddit taken down for a while? Oh, sorry, I don't know. I think I think it was. I think it briefly got suspended because it's controversial, the idea of detransitioners getting together. Um, but that's that's grown enormously over the last few years. And that's one of the signs that the um, that detransition is a growing issue. Not everybody who signs up on the forum is going to be a detransitioner. They might be watchers like me. They might be people who want to write about it or they might be clinicians. But... I think it is one of the indications that detransition is a growing issue because it's come out of nowhere and it's got thousands and thousands of subscribers now. I don't have um, an up-to-date figure, I'm afraid. But yes, I suppose the internet works to um, introduce people to ideas, introduce people to each other, and it can help um, movements and ideas grow. But this isn't a... it's not... It's, it's a quite an established idea in other areas, you know. Um, we know that this happens with eating disorders and um, also with suicides. Um, there'll be other, other examples too, I expect, but that's why you have to be really careful and responsible about conveying ideas like this. And the internet's a bit more of a wild west. And one of the things I, before the uh, the podcast I did was I, I read what uh, what Stonewall had to say about about detransitioners, and uh, it's well it's fair to say then they don't seem very pleased about the concept of it at all. They say that there's uh, there's uh, very very few people detransition, and that's not necessarily a sign that it's um, uh, that they shouldn't have transitioned in the first place. Because how would they have known if they unless they'd lived as a, a different gender? Do you think perhaps James? Do you think it's true that uh, perhaps, do you think detransitioners are dangerous to the, the trans cause or do you think there's a way to to kind of live with both um well yes to both really i think that clearly detransitioners are highly problematic for people who want to argue that uh you know gen gender is completely uh sort of intrinsic and personal and that uh, everybody should have the right to have whatever treatment they have uh you know, without question. Um, it, it, again, it's a very complex and nuanced. I, I, I knew that that feeling was around because when I started the research, and I did do two years of my MA before I was stopped, and most of that was doing um, methodology, uh, but I was also looking on the internet all the time to see what was going on in this. And I was a member of WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Uh, this organization has been around in one form or another, again, for about 40 or 50, about 50 years. And um, it had moved from being very much uh, a medics organization to being an organization that was quite dominated by what we've come to call transactivism, uh, which has come to mean something quite specific, I think. And it was clear to me, because I was on the chat rooms and what have you, on, these, on, on the WPAR forums, that detransition was not a welcome subject. Uh, if anybody mentioned it, they were pretty quickly kind of shot down. And again, the narrative there was, well, it's a very small number of people, um, and and that you know, it, and without actually explicitly saying so, and it's problematic for the cause. There's very little research into the whole field around transgender medicine. There were some very small and uh, intermittent studies done into outcomes of treatment. So this would be you know, how people felt and how they were after having hormones, after having surgery. These studies suggested that between one and five percent of people regretted. Now, let's just pick that apart a little bit. These studies were done into small numbers of people. One of them was simply of 10 patients from the clinic, only 10. Um, there, there is no long-term follow-up of patients in gender clinics at all. Let's be clear about this. Um, nobody knows what's happened to all of the people, the hundreds of people that have been through the NHS gender clinic because they're not followed up. They have their treatment, they go away, they live their lives. Some of them might stay in touch with the clinic, very, very few. If the clinic were to write to them, they could have moved or they could just ignore the letter there's no way of making people come back and tell you, how are you getting on after one year, two year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? 
There's no research into it. We don't know. All we have really is anecdotal evidence and these very few small studies that have been done internationally into long-term outcomes. These studies are completely out of date because they predate uh, mass use of the internet. Some of them go back to the 80s and the 90s. In fact, most of them do. Um, the only study that was ever done into a large group of people was done in Sweden in about 2011, and it was into the mental health of people who transitioned in Sweden. And for some reason, the Swedish medical system was able to keep in touch with these people in a way that our systems don't and can't. And it was found, actually, in that study that the mental health of the people who transitioned was actually a lot worse than the, uh, the average mental health in the general population. But that's another subject for discussion. Um, but my point is that we simply don't know. We don't have the follow-up. We, we don't look at uh, what happens to people and the studies are outdated. So when I saw on WPATH that people would be dismissively say, oh, well, it's only, you know, 1%, maybe max 5% of people. Although actually my thoughts were, well, what about those? If it, even if it was 1% to 5%, what about those people? Don't we care about them? Don't, don't we want to look what's happening with them? But interestingly, in my whole career, no one ever discussed those people that regretted, not even the people that sued doctors. There were, my feeling that I picked up was that it was almost as if they were rather ungrateful, problematic patients. Now, there is something in medicine called blame the patient, um, which can be a bit of a syndrome. People can be difficult patients. Um, but, but, but actually, I think we failed those people. Um, the, the problem is that if you go back to the idea of, of uh, you know, you went from gatekeeping to informed consent to affirmation, that uh, people would learn what to say to the doctor. Uh, in fact, even now you can go online, anyone can go online and read what you need to say to get hormone treatment, to get referrals for surgery, and people would do that. People would tell other people, this is what you need to say to the doctor. You know, back in the bad old days at Charing Cross, you need to wear a dress. Don't go in trousers, you won't get your hormone treatment. So, so let, let's then move on to this being problematic to what we call trans activists. So what do we mean by trans activists today. I think we mean people who have a particular narrative about trans, transgender and transitioning, and, and who have a, a, a particular very politicized view and campaign for that, don't we? Um, so these would be different to the people that I would have said were the trans activists of old, which were the people I knew who wanted to set up organizations to stop discrimination and to get equal employment rights for people and so on and so forth because people would be terribly discriminated against before we had the laws that we've got and uh, they would be dismissed from their jobs I mean someone who transitioned would effectively probably never work again unless they were self-employed there was no protection for them so this is why the original organizations were set up and quite rightly so but when we talk about transactivism today I think we are talking about something quite different to that uh, so, yes, detransitioners are problematic because they undermine that narrative. They undermine the idea that gender is nothing to do with the body. This is some queer theory and critical theory, isn't it, in academia? Um, they undermine the idea that uh, trans is something absolutely intrinsic that nobody but the person themselves can possibly know and nobody could or should ever challenge. Of course, that absolutely clashes with the fact that a doctor is responsible for the treatment they give a patient. You can't get away from that. So that, that's irreconcilable, actually. Uh, you can't have treatment on demand, really, when a doctor will carry the can in the end, not the patient. Can I, can I give you a couple of fleshed-out human examples from my project that I think will explain why there's a difficult attitude towards detransition? Yeah, please do. So, OK, here's, here's two. So one is Lucy. She was in the... Sunday Times feature. Now, Lucy had really bad anorexia as a teenager. Her weight went down to 39 kilos. She also realized that she was a lesbian and got bullied at school for it. She went to um, a, a gender identity clinic. This is in Germany, so a slightly different process. She had to see a therapist there before she could um, go ahead with transition. But it doesn't sound like it was a very rigorous process and he accepted her gender straight away without questioning it, didn't explore her anorexia or being a lesbian. 
By 20, she was on hormones and she'd had a double mastectomy. And then shortly afterwards, she had her uterus and her ovaries removed. She had that done by the time she was 21. When I interviewed her, she's 23 and she's in full menopause. Now she is really angry with the doctors that allowed this to happen and she hasn't gone back to them. So this is a very, very young woman who had mental health problems, had anorexia, um, suffered bullying for being a lesbian, thought she was a man, completely irreversibly changed her body. She's in menopause, she will never be able to have children, she'll never get her breasts back. And she's not a statistic for a detransitioner because one, there's no longitudinal follow-up, like James was saying, and she hasn't proactively gone back to the original doctors because she never wants to see them again. Then there's Amber, who's 21, but she, um, she was sexually abused really badly from when she was 11 within her family. And she also came across pornography at that age, which pornography isn't... Um, it's not, it's not ideal viewing material for an 11-year-old girl who's being sexually abused. And by the age of 18, she had had a double mastectomy. And then by the age of 20, she'd had a hysterectomy and her ovaries removed. Um, her scars are actually really bad. She's not in the Sunday Times feature. We had to limit how many could go in because of a you know pages issue but honestly I think another reason she hasn't gone in is is her scars are they're confronting they literally hold a mirror up to what detransition can look like um so if anybody wants to see um her story in my project there's a, a medium article and she hasn't gone back to her doctors because she doesn't want to I mean these these women are quite psychologically frail in some senses. They're really strong because they've been through a lot, but there's also a frailty and there can be shame. And they're also angry with the medics who allowed this, encouraged this. They had an enormous responsibility to look after these young women. And I don't think they were looked after if they were given this irreversible surgery in their late teens and early 20s. And so they don't come back, they don't go back, they don't get counted as detransitioners. We have literally no idea how many people like this there might be out there. And it's very confronting and very difficult for people to think about because it is disruptive to transgender ideology. In a way, the idea of detransition leapfrogs over all of the politics about what identifying as something means, about what gender means. These are just these are just people in bodies who are suffering, who regret the treatment they've had. And that's that's a difficult thing to consider. But we don't know the scale. We've got no idea what the scale of the problem is. I think it's a lot bigger than people think it is. I would absolutely agree. In those years from 2015 through to 2017, when I was, I was on the internet, a lot looking at what was happening while I was doing my preliminary uh, methodology. Uh, I, I thought that there were hundreds and hundreds of people then, and I now think there will be thousands of people and all over the world, because this is now happening all over the world. I've been getting emails from people in places like India and Australasia and South America, not just in the UK and the US, it's everywhere. Um, and there was recently a series made about young women in India, which is a society where the abuse of women and girls is is uh, very, very high. It's horrendous. And uh, whole groups of, of girls, in, in some ways, just finding a way to escape from what it meant to be a girl or a woman because it was such a difficult experience for them. So these are conversations that need to be had. Um, censoring research, censoring conversations. I mean, when I first started out with this, uh, people would use pseudonyms to discuss it. You know, if you if you talk to somebody on the internet, you wouldn't know who they really were because people were so afraid. People almost instinctively knew, even a few years ago, that to question what has become known as the trans narrative uh, would, would, would result in the most massive backlash. I mean, if you were employed in the public sector, it certainly would. I used to give transgender awareness training to the public sector, to the NHS, to staff in general hospitals, to staff in social services, care homes, and so on. 
um, as well as in the private sector, the psychotherapist. And I would give uh, my talk, it would be a, a half a day or a day talk, during which I would tell people what was happening. I would tell them the history of transgender, about the work that I'd experienced and what I'd witnessed. And I would tell them about what I discovered in the preliminary research and that people, you know, they had become politicized. I would actually lay it all out, um, really, with no bones about it. And every time I gave a presentation, including that, people would come up to me afterwards. And these would be generally people that worked in sort of mid-range public sector, you know, um, people who worked with, say, uh, teenagers with mental health problems or in social services or, or whatever. And they would all say the same thing. They would say, I'm so glad to hear what you've said today, referring to the fact that I laid out the complexity and the controversy of it all. Um, I'm so glad you said it because I thought that but I knew I couldn't say anything. And one woman even said, I thought that, but I knew I shouldn't think it. I mean, this was thought sense. And, 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 and I thought, my goodness, um, and I, I don't give those trainings anymore. And I think if I'd continued to give the trainings I gave in the way that I gave, that there'd have been a complaint about me by now because I would have been accused of transphobia because I was not supporting the trans narrative I was simply giving the truth because, you see, my angle on it is that um, we should do no harm. Psychotherapists and doctors should do no harm. And people were telling me they were being harmed. I had to listen to that. I had to research that. And, and we have a, a, a moral duty to listen to those people. So my research is all about giving them a voice. Um, I don't have a problem in acknowledging that there are people that transition who are happy with that. I know quite a lot of those people. They will say, however, that it's um, not something to be undertaken lightly. To undertake a lifetime of medical treatment is not easy, and there are potential serious side effects, and people have to contend with a, uh, you know, a minefield psychologically and, and emotionally and physically in doing it. That's something that we never hear, actually, that isn't discussed. Um, you know, it's not just a, an easy breeze at all. Um, yes, there are people who say, well, actually, it's improved my life, although they paid a certain price for that. Um, but we need to listen to everybody. These conversations need to be had. One thing, Laura, that I found, I don't know whether you've come across this publication, I found in 2016 a publication called um, Blood and Visions, and it was an A5 booklet produced by 10 young women in the United States who transitioned and detransitioned. And when I read that book, I was absolutely shocked because each one of these young women had been convinced they were trans or convinced that they were male um, and had gone through treatments of hormones and in some cases surgery, breast removal usually, um, and then regretted it and detransitioned and were absolutely vociferous in their uh, view of what had happened to them. And, and, and again, uh, my, my angle is that I was reporting what people were saying. I wanted to, to give people a voice. It's not really what I think. I wanted to tell people what other people were saying. And what these people were saying, some of them said that they felt they'd been drawn into a cult. They used that word. They felt that this had happened on the internet and that they joined this group where they were welcomed and celebrated and they were part of some great new movement. And they thought it was going to resolve all of their considerable problems because I think every single one of them had some form of sexual abuse and some had been raped and they hated their bodies and they hated being female. And they, they felt that um, basically it hadn't solved their problems. In most cases, it had added to their problems or in many of the cases. And that when they detransitioned and when they then left the group, that they were persona non grata. They were censured, mm. they were criticized, some of them were threatened. Um, there's some nasty stuff out there on the internet, as most people now know. Um, death threats, things like that. Uh, really horrible, horrible psychologically attacking stuff. And they'd endured all of that. They had come to a kind of radical feminist position in their thinking, where they believed that they had 
been subject to internalized misogyny. They had uh, hated themselves for being female um, and that they thought they were going to get away from that and have a wonderful new life. And it hadn't happened that way. I read that. It's wrong. Yeah. I, I would suggest to anybody who has a serious interest in this subject or who doubts the seriousness of it to obtain that booklet, Blood and Vision, available from the Green Woman Press on the internet in the States. It's $12 and they post it to you. Um, to, to read that because I was absolutely shocked by that. And it absolutely confirmed the need for, for this conversation and for this research. Yeah, I like so much of what you just said there, um, James. Um, that book is great. And also, if I may, I'd recommend people look at my feature, The Detransitioners, um, because that, I mean, I think it took courage, to be honest, for The Sunday Times to publish that Um there's a, there's a lot of criticism about talking about detransitions. We've covered quite a lot, and they were really collaborative, really supportive, and really brave. You know, they've really they really went there. They were they were a dream to work with. But I like what you said about moral duty because I think it's really important to have courage of your convictions and and see things through this moral lens. I didn't I didn't undertake this project because I'm saying something about me detransitioning. What I think about it, it's it's a curation of other people's stories. And I was really warned off doing this, actually. A few people told me not to do it. They said that I might need to look at my home security because I can make people really angry. I mean, what a, isn't that crazy? Um, and I was also told it might be really bad for my career. I do think there's probably a couple of publications that won't publish me again. But I, didn't, I really didn't know how I could get into this, uncover these women's stories and not publish it because you can't hide the truth if you if you hide the truth you're pushing it to the back of a, a dark closet where it's just going to fester and molder but it's not going to go away human beings are capable of the most amazing distortion of the truth but i'm really i'm really only interested in the truth um so i really liked what you said about moral duty i think the cult aspect is interesting because some of the people who think they're trans, who then go on to detransition, are very frail. Like I said, they've gone through some really difficult times, and the trans community is enormously welcoming. And the online world can feel quite overwhelming. It can feel quite real, and they get drawn in. And then, like you also said, James, if they come out of it, they can lose all their friends. So I focused on um, the surgery when I was talking about examples before, but. I don't want to belittle what it's like for somebody who detransitions if what they've done is change their name, their pronouns, their clothes. Maybe they went as far as getting a, a gender recognition certificate and changing their passport. Because actually coming from, back from that is a big deal. If you have made your family accept you as trans and you've got a whole new group of friends and then you detransition, that's got quite big implications socially. And... And the women I interviewed all told me about the troubles they'd had with losing friendships, not being spoken to again, becoming persona non grata. And that's difficult. That's just, especially it's difficult for young people, isn't it? Friendships are so important. Well, we are rapidly running out of time, so I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, even though it was a fascinating discussion. Uh, Laura Dodsworth and James Caspian, thank you so much for coming on the Critic Podcast to discuss this topic. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's been great. Really interesting. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.